May I introduce Dr. Dennis Hollinger and Dr. Marianne Hollinger. Dr. Dennis Hollinger is the president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. That's where Chris and Patek and Jojo are students. And Dr. Hollinger is a leader in the evangelical church around the U.S. and around the world. And one way he leads, one area where he leads, is in the the area of ethics. Uh, He's written extensively in this regard, and he uh, consults with churches and others, especially in the area of sexual ethics, and that's our topic this morning. He knows the Bible. He knows the church, he's been a pastor, he knows human nature, and he brings it all together with this topic of why sex and marriage belong together, but they do not belong together uh, outside of marriage. We're countercultural in this regard, aren't we, Christians? We swim against the stream of our culture. Why is that? That's the case he will present to us today. And our teaching comes from Genesis chapter 39, the story of Joseph and uh, as when he was a slave in Potiphar's household. I'm reading from the uh, English Standard Version. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had, brought, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything except the food that he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused, and he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day he went into the house to do his work, And none of the men of the house were there in the house. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. 
As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until the master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, in the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. He showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Will you please welcome President Dennis Hollinger. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jeff, and it really is a joy to be with you. The last time I preached from this pulpit, it was a number of years ago on an Easter Sunday morning, and it was with the Chinese group. Um, I've lost my Mandarin since. No, I haven't. I never had it. It was with translator. But it really is good to be back here and uh, to share with you this morning. I bring you greetings from Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Lots of linkages between the seminary and this church. Staff members, former students, current, uh, current students. And uh, we also have today one of our admissions people with us, Carl Wacker. Carl, are you in... There he is, back there, tall guy back at the back. And uh, he's here so that any of you that would like to talk to someone about Gordon Conwell, you have the opportunity to do so. I think a lot of people, when they think about seminary, think a place to go to prepare to be a pastor, a missionary, or a teacher. But we have lots of students who are in the business world, in health professions, education, lots of different fields who come and study with us because they want to deepen their knowledge of God's word, understand how they can be more effective in God's calling in their life. And so I'd encourage you to stop by the booth out in the foyer afterwards, have a chance to talk to Carl and consider perhaps taking courses at Gordon-Conwell. We have evening classes, some weekend classes, lots of different opportunities. Now, before we look to God's word, let us pause for just a moment of prayer. Our gracious God, as we deal with this sometimes touchy and difficult subject, 
We pray that you will give us minds to hear from you, hearts receptive to you, and through this story in Genesis 39, give us a determination to be faithful to you in this realm of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's sometimes said that in this country, the United States of America, we live in a sex-crazed society. Just about everywhere you look and everywhere you go, there are sexual references, images, and innuendos. You go to a store to buy a product, and often the way in which that product is sold or attempted to be sold to you is through some kind of a sex appeal. You turn on the television, and the nightly fair is pretty well filled with all kinds of references to sex. Today, in our culture, it's often expected that casual relationships are going to involve some kind of intimate physical relationship. We know from statistics, the latest data that we have, nearly 50% of all children born into the United States are born outside of a marriage. And we know that the number one industry in the Internet has to do with sex, namely pornography. I'm quite sure if a visitor from another planet came to this country, and it's not only true of the United States, it's now pervasive throughout the world, But if a person came from another planet and looked down for a day upon us, it would probably say, this group of people has sex everywhere on their minds. In the midst of it, as Christians, countercultural people, as was referred to a moment ago, we ask the question, how do we honor God? How do we maintain a life of integrity and holiness and purity? And how do we have healthy perspectives and healthy attitudes about this dimension of our lives, the physical intimacy dimension? Well, I think the Bible really can help us. And the story that Jeff read so eloquently to us a moment ago, I think, is a story that can really help us understand how We are faithful to God in this realm of life. It's the story of Joseph. He's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. Joseph was the youngest of 12 boys in the family. Man, I pity those parents. 12 boys they had to deal with. Joseph was the youngest, and we know that he was a bit brash and somewhat taken with himself, at least in the earlier stage of his life. As a result, his brothers didn't like him at all. The older brothers had gone off to do some work. It was economic hard times in Palestine. And so they went to another area to work. And his father said, I'd like you to go visit your brothers. Take them some goodie bags, some food, see how they're doing, and report back to me. Before Joseph left, his father gave him a new coat, a beautiful coat. And when his brothers saw him coming they once again were filled with envy and disgust with their younger brother. And so they took Joseph and they sold him off into slavery. They took that beautiful new coat that his father had given to him and they dipped it in blood 
in order to try to deceive their father into believing that a wild animal had attacked him and had killed Joseph. Joseph ends up in Egypt. And the world looked terribly different for this budding young man. He once had the world by the tail. Talented, intelligent, well-built, good-looking, athletic. He seemed to have it all. And now he's alone in a distant country. Away from his family, away from his friends, away from the foundation even of his faith in God. There in Egypt, he begins working for a military official by the name of Potiphar. And we're told in the beginning of the story of chapter 39 that the Lord was with him and prospered him and enabled him. Potiphar saw his great abilities and gifts, and so he made him the manager over all of his household and all of his affairs. Evidently, Potiphar owned a large estate, had a lot of workers on the estate, and everything on that estate was put in charge of Joseph. It was in this setting that Joseph experienced the greatest temptation of his life. He's now likely in his early to mid-twenties, and we read this, the last part of verse 6. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And verse 7, And after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. Come on, Joseph. Potiphar's out of town. He's too busy for me even when he is home. My needs aren't met. No one will ever know. And what's to lose, Joseph? with a little bit of pleasure. And besides, Joseph, I find you awfully appealing. It wasn't the last time that temptation came to Joseph. Day after day, she came to him and offered the same. Here is a young, robust man, not married, normal sexual drives, a beautiful woman, And probably everything in Joseph's body is saying, Joseph, go for it. Joseph, however, didn't give in. Verse 10, we read, And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. When you read the story, I think you ask the question immediately, how in the world was Joseph able to resist this temptation? I think there are several things in the story that help us understand that. The first is that Joseph really knew the meaning of this gift that God had given to human beings. He knew the meaning of sex. And he had deep convictions that had developed in his life as a result of that. Deep convictions that You and I have no chance of warding off temptations unless we have those deep convictions. And so in verses 8 and 9, we read, But he refused the offer. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. 
No one is greater in this household than I am. My pastor, my, my master, has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Joseph, with his convictions, knew that giving in to the temptation would been, have been wrong for several reasons. On the one hand, it would have wronged Potiphar's wife, even though she was the one giving the invitation. It probably would have only further damaged a very badly fractured relationship that existed between Potiphar and his wife. It would have wronged Potiphar, for to commit adultery with the spouse of another is always to hurt that other person. It is to infringe into their own marriage and into their own covenant relationship. And even if she had not been married, it would have hurt her future spouse. And even for Joseph, had he given in, it would have hurt his future spouse. Because the ramifications of sexual immorality are broad and wide and deep. But Joseph knew something else. He knew that if he gave in to this temptation, it would have wronged God. And therefore he says, how then can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Now, it's very important to understand that Joseph would not have sinned against God because sex was a bad thing. I think a lot of Christians have that misunderstanding. What we need to understand from the get-go is it is a good and wonderful gift from God. That's clear from the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. When you go through chapter 1, God creates this wonderful world, a very physical world, and after each day, he pronounces it good. He actually institutes sexuality into the very heart of nature, into the animal world, He even tells the animal world to procreate. And after every day and the creation of nature and the creation of animals, even with sexuality, he pronounces it good. And then you get to Genesis chapter 1, 27 and 28, and we read that God created Adam and Eve in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. And the very first command he gives to them is to have sex, be fruitful, and multiply. It's the very first commandment we have in Scripture. And then you go down several verses later in chapter 1 of Genesis, and it says God looked upon everything he had made, including sexuality in this physical capacity, and he said, behold, it is very good. Like all of God's good gifts, there's a purpose to them. And that's true with this gift of sex. And I think Joseph had some understanding that God had given this gift for a reason, for reasons. And if he had given in to the temptation of Potiphar's wife, it would have distorted the goodness and the beauty of this gift. There are five reasons I believe that God gave this gift to the human race. 
And we need to understand that a legitimate physical intimacy only occurs in the context of these five purposes. The first reason God gave the good gift is that it consummates or it completes a marriage. Genesis 2.24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The three things that are involved here in this description in verse 24 of Genesis, first there's a change of status. It leaves father and mother. A change of status that is recognized in all societies legally and with a ceremony. A recognition now that this man and this woman now have a distinct relationship to each other. Change of status recognized by the community and even by the state. Second, there is a commitment. The two will cleave or cling to each other. Uh, Almost the word conveys the idea of being glued to each other. But it connotes the idea that marriage involves a commitment. In the rest of the Bible, it will describe that as a covenant relationship. Just as God has made promises to us and we enter into a covenant relationship with him, so marriage is a covenant relationship. And then the third thing, and the thing that consummates the other parts, the two shall become one flesh. This refers explicitly to the physical union between the man and the woman. When a man and woman are joined together physically, it is not just bodily parts. It's their whole being. God created us as whole beings. And when one gives themselves to another physically, they are giving the whole of themselves to that other person. That's the meaning of becoming one flesh. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, says that if one goes to a prostitute and has sex with her, he has become one flesh with her. What that means is the person has gone through the consummating act of a marriage without the other elements of the marriage. They've gone through the thing that really brings the whole together, that ties it together, that completes it. There's no commitment. There's no change of status. It's simply a physical intimacy. But the God's ideal is that two people come together and experience this oneness, which is the ultimate act of trust and abandonment of oneself to the other. That sexual relationship sets the relationship apart from all other relationships that a couple might have. It is the ultimate act of trust when we abandon our bodies and souls and minds to another human being. And every physical act between a husband and wife after marriage is an affirmation of their one flesh relationship. Joseph, you see, understood and knew that this would be a life-uniting act without any life-uniting intent. And therefore, he says, how can I do this wicked thing and sin against God? There's a second reason God gave the gift to the human race, and that is for procreation, to bring children into the world. 
As Genesis 1.28, as I noted a moment ago, be fruitful and multiply. It's interesting, isn't it, that God's design is that human beings come into this world, are born through the most intimate, loving relationship that is possible, this one flesh relationship. Sex, therefore, is about procreation. Now, today we have means of controlling all of that, and in many ways our modern world has forgotten that sex is about procreation. We now have ways of actually uh, conceiving children and having children come into the world without the physical intimacy. And so in the minds of many people, well, sex is one thing, having children is another. But by its very nature, the sexual act is a life-producing act. By its very nature, it is not just about us. It is not just about our feelings. It is about new life. And it is representative of new life that comes into the world. Though part of why it would have been sin for Joseph to give in to Potiphar's wife's enticements was that it was not a relationship that was willing to assume the potential fruit that that could come from that physical act. That doesn't mean, by the way, that in a marriage, couple must always intend to procreate. But they only enter into that kind of a physical union because they are willing to bear the fruit that can come from that act. They recognize this is the way children are born into the world. This is the gift of God for reproducing. And so a legitimate sexual act is one that is in the context of procreation, one that is surrounded by that deep covenant commitment we call marriage. Joseph said, how can I give in and indulge in this wicked act and sin against God? Because he recognized this was not a context of procreation. Thirdly, God gave this gift to the human race as a way of expressing love in a marriage relationship. There's a whole book of the Bible that is really devoted to that. It's called the Song of Songs. Some refer to it as the Song of Solomon. And sometimes Christians have been nervous about this book. They've sometimes changed it into an allegory to say, well, it's an allegory pointing to God's love for his people or Christ's love for the church. But I take it at face value, as have many biblical scholars over the years. Listen to the words in the second chapter. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. And down in verse 13, the fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. The physical union in marriage is the most intimate way of saying, I love you. It's not the only way. And of course, there are many very important ways that we say, I love you, as spouses in a marriage, by listening well to each other 
by doing the little things for each other that we know are meaningful and are really loved by our spouses. But physical union is the most expressive way, the most physical way. And one of the things I've discovered as I've talked to people over the years and sometimes done some counseling with couples who are struggling in this realm of life, physical intimacy is usually one of the first things to go when the marriage has gone sour and when the marriage is struggling. But God's ideal is that it's one of the beautiful, joyous ways in which husband and wife say to each other, I love you. Joseph knew that to give in to the enticements would have been a wicked act, would have been a sin against God, because there was no love on his part and there was no love on her part. There may have been emotional feelings, but emotional feelings in true love are very far from each other. There's a fourth reason that God gave this gift to the human race, and that is for pleasure. Yes, for pleasure. God has given many gifts in life for our own enjoyment and for pleasure. As has sometimes been noted, pleasure is not the invention of the devil. Pleasure is the invention of God. And interestingly, in this realm of life, God has made our physical bodies with certain bodily parts that serve no other biological function than sexual stimulation. And so if God has made us that way, it shows its significance. It shows the pleasure dimension is important. The Song of Songs affirms that. It's affirmed other places in Scripture, such as Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. The chapter is a warning about adultery, a warning about breaking the bonds of marriage by having physical intimacy with one uh, who is outside your own relationship, outside your own marriage. And verses 18 and 19 says this, May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Part of the problem we have in our culture today is we have isolated pleasure from the other dimensions of sexuality. And so we've isolated it from the commitment. We've isolated it from the one flesh understanding. We've isolated it from procreation. And it's interesting that right now a number of secular psychologists are pointing to the reality that the more people seek pleasure alone, in this realm of life and in other realms of life, the less they actually experience it. This is particularly evident in pornography. People seek to get a quick high and some kind of pleasure, but it takes more and more and more to satisfy. The patterns of the brain are impacted by it. And so what is meant by God as a true act of pleasure actually ends up losing true pleasure. Joseph knew it would have been wrong to give in to the act of pleasure because it would have been pleasure for a moment, isolated, from the other dimensions of this good gift of God. And then there's one final purpose that God gave the gift to human beings, and that is really a spiritual purpose. It is an act that points towards our union with God. 
for a believer, for a husband and wife who love God, who love Christ, when they come into a physical union with each other and the beauty of marriage, for them it is really pointing to the fact that this is a foretaste of the ultimate union, the greatest union a human being can have, and that is a union with our Maker and our Redeemer. So Joseph, you see, understood that having sex with Potiphar's wife was immoral because it could not encompass these purposes. Yes, it might have brought pleasure, but even that pleasure would have lacked the deeper pleasures of life in knowing that we have followed God's design, recognizing that pleasure is far more than simply the tingling of nerve endings. And God's design is that sex be the consummation of a marriage, that it be in a procreative context, a willingness, ability to bear the fruit that can come from the act, that it is an expression of covenant love, and it is, yes, an act of pleasure, but it is also a spiritual act pointing to our union with God. These purposes can only come together in one place, and that is in a marriage between a man and a woman. You can only get those five purposes in one place, and that is in that relationship we call marriage between a man and a woman. Other forms in some manner deviate from those five purposes. And so Joseph knew that. And therefore Joseph said, how then can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God. But not only did Joseph know the meaning of sex and thus its boundaries, he also knew how to resist the temptation. Verses 10 to 12, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to beg with her or even be with her. And one day he went out of the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to beg with me. But he left his cloak in her hand, and he ran out of the house. Joseph, you see, knew what the Bible tells us with regards to temptations in this realm of life, and that is that we need to flee from them. Joseph understood, just within his own body, that this gift of God is a powerful gift, It is so powerful it can bring new life into the world. It is so powerful it can destroy human life. Sex is so powerful that it can bond and cement a covenant marriage together. And it is so powerful it can destroy a relationship when misused. Joseph knew the power and therefore he fled from the situation. It's interesting that in the Bible, there are two different kinds of injunctions for temptation. Sometimes we are commanded to resist the temptation, to stand firm, to not let ourselves get duped. And other times it is to flee from the temptation. And when it comes to the sexual realm, it is almost always flee from the temptation. Why? Very simply because of its unique power. Therefore, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee the evil desire of youth. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. I suspect that all of us know our own vulnerabilities. 
the areas where we could easily give in to temptations. I recall a conversation I had with a young man uh, at a church I was pastoring in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. And he was struggling with same-sex attraction in his life, with homosexual impulses. And as we were talking about this one day, I said to him, I said, when is it that you most experience the temptations? He kind of looked at me sheepishly and he said, well, when I go into the gay bars and the adult bookstores. We made a pact that day. He was going to avoid those situations. And you see, for all of us, we know where we are vulnerable in life. For some, it may be with pornography. For others, it may be placing ourselves in vulnerable situations where we can let our minds and our hormones take over. Sometimes the temptations come because we're insecure and we're lonely. But we need to remember that sex without marital commitment only makes for much greater loneliness and for much greater insecurity. Whatever the source of our temptations, we need to do what Joseph did, and that is to flee from the source of the heat. Well, the story ends in a very interesting fashion. It points on the one hand to the fact that following God's designs in life isn't always popular, and that sometimes in being faithful to God, we may even pay a price. There are people in prison today, many in China, other countries of the world, for their faith. They've recognized that following the designs and ways of God and a commitment to Christ doesn't always make life go well and cheery and happy. Joseph experienced that. Because uh, when Potiphar got home from the business trip, his wife accused Joseph of sexual harassment, and he got put in prison. He paid for his faithfulness. But ultimately, God is always faithful to us in our faithfulness. And the story in chapter 29, 39 ends with these fantastic words. The Lord was with him. This is as he's in prison. And he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. And the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Joseph eventually arises to a significant position within the Egyptian government. And in the end, God has rewarded him because he has experienced the delight of the Lord. He has experienced a free conscience. He has experienced an inner peace because Joseph understood that God had granted a good gift to human beings. But that good gift could only be experienced in the way he ordained it. Joseph came to understand that his own commitment to God and his commitments to the promises that he would make in life were the things that would keep him holy and pure. And so he was able to serve God faithfully, and God rewarded him for it. May God give us the strength to be faithful, faithful to our own commitments, faithful to our spouse, 
Younger people who are not married, faithful to the spouse you will someday marry, and faithful to the God of the universe who created us sexual beings. Let's pray. Gracious God, we live in a very confused world in this whole arena. We recognize within us that this good and beautiful gift has great power that can easily be misused. But we ask, O God, that you will deepen our own desire and commitment of our hearts to be faithful to you, to live for you in this realm of life. I pray for younger people who are not married, perhaps older people who are not married, for those who are in marriages, that you will enable and strengthen and give deep conviction for your honor and your glory. Amen.